I thought, since I've got the pulpit, I'm going to uh, make the most of it and give you a missions update today. Um, <laughs> a long one. Um, for those of you that I don't know, um, by brief introduction, hopefully brief, um, I have been coming to the well here with my family for a number of years. And for the last five years, I've actually been supported as a mission worker, as a missionary, um, by you guys here at the well. Uh, five years ago, um, I've been working in the area of anti-trafficking for a long time, but five years ago, I was asked by SIM International to come and set up a new global anti-trafficking ministry for them to coordinate their global response to human trafficking. So we called our new ministry for freedom. Uh, our focus is on preventing human trafficking and protecting those who are most at risk. Uh, it's a pretty big job. I do it part-time. I sort of job share with my good friend and colleague, Corrine, who is based in Sydney. Uh, and I guess most of our work involves sort of supporting workers who are working in various anti-trafficking areas, um, providing a lot of strategic guidance and training. As part of my role as well, um, I've had a couple of other things added in over recent months. Um, at the end of last year, I was appointed an anti-trafficking advisor, it's a long title, with the World Evangelical Alliance Mission Commission. Um, <laughs> And I'm also currently working with the European Freedom Network, which I'm going to be talking about this morning, and I'll be calling them EFN. Um, and I am leading their trauma response to the Ukrainian refugee situation. So although I get to serve from home at New Brighton Beach, I work very globally. I spend a ridiculous amount of time on Zoom, uh, and not always between 9 and 5 p.m., um, so today what I'm going to do is give you a bit of a mission update over what's been going on the last few months, uh, and I want to give a bit of a testimony as to how God has been moving in the midst of all of this, and I want to do it in the context of Psalm 46. Is that okay? So we're going to start with the mission update. Now often I get asked, what do you actually do? <laughs> It's like, we know you do anti-trafficking, and some people go, oh, prevention, but what do you actually do? Uh, and in March, when we were doing online church, um, I gave a short update on some work I was doing with the European Freedom Network uh, to help keep Ukrainian refugees safe from human traffickers. Um, refugees are the most trafficked people group in the world because they're traumatized, they've left all their support systems, they've got no income, they've got nowhere to live, they're separated from family. They are really, really vulnerable to strangers coming along and saying, come with me, I can help you. And so we knew as soon as reports of war had broken that traffickers would be flocking to take advantage of this situation and we knew that we had to do something uh, so within days, we had written and translated a really simple flyer with prevention and protection messaging. And this was translated into Ukrainian. If you can't read it from the back, it says on it, we stand with you 
And it's just got five simple things. Protect your ID. Don't give your documents to anyone. Don't give your personal phone to anyone. Wherever you are, register with the local authorities. If you're traveling with someone you don't know, take a photo of the person and the vehicle and send it to someone you know and trust. If you choose to stay somewhere other than the accommodation provided, make sure you notify local authorities and tell them. And if there's a suspicious person or you've got any concerns, tell the police. You know, it's basic stuff. And then there was a whole list of um, 0800 numbers down the bottom. You see, this is trafficking prevention. Much though I'd like to pretend otherwise, it's not rocket science. It's often just really simple, practical things that people can do to keep themselves safe. But the thing for refugees, when they flee in a hurry and they're scared and they're traumatized and they don't know where they're going and their kids are crying because they've been walking for days, you can be easily distracted and it's easy to accept any offer of help without thinking it through like we normally would. Hundreds of thousands of these really basic flyers were given out at borders. Uh, they were put onto banners, um, spread online through social media, and we didn't know if it was actually doing anything. But then at Easter, uh, we had a report back from UNHCR who have been working on all the borders, and they contacted us and said, hey, we are noticing there's a really high level of knowledge and awareness of trafficking safety coming through amongst the refugees. It's because of this little flyer they have seen and been given, which was pretty cool because we don't often get to find out whether stuff that we do is actually effective. And I want to just give you one example. I was talking with a friend a few weeks ago called Lena, who's in Romania, and she told me something that had happened to her that day. Uh, she had been working at the Ukraine-Romania border, um, handing out these flyers, and she felt the Lord tell her to go and speak with this young woman, a woman who was in her early 20s, she was on her own, and she looked really upset. So Lena spent some time with her, and she prayed with her, she gave her this flyer, and she also felt the Lord prompt her to give her her business card. Half an hour later, my friend's phone rang, and it was this young woman in an absolute panic, saying, please help us, we're on a bus, there's only women my age on it, and it's taking us the wrong way, it's not going where we're supposed to be going, what do we do, please help us. So she got the border police, who got the Romanian police, who were able to stop the bus, and in doing so, they uncovered this trafficking ring that had been going to the border collecting busfuls of young single women and trafficking them. You see, this simple little flyer worked, and UNHCR has said it's prevented hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian refugees from being trafficked. So that was our initial response, keeping refugees safe, and for some bizarre reason, despite being here in Christchurch on the other side of the world, uh, my role ended up being getting this all translated into Polish and Slovak and Hungarian, all these you know, languages I'm not really that fluent in, and Romanian. Um, but God was amazing, and, and he just provided Polish and Romanian and Hungarian and Slovak 
translators, and we got all of this stuff done. Um, the next thing, we started getting requests from churches in Europe. You see, we all saw on the news, you know, all these people going to borders and train stations, offering accommodation, and hundreds of thousands of people in Europe have literally said, I've got a spare room, I can take a refugee family in. Okay, there's more than five million Ukrainians being housed elsewhere in Europe at the moment. And these people in Europe who've opened up their homes to refugees who are extremely traumatized from what they have experienced, all these people are now going, oh, this is really hard. Uh, we didn't know it was gonna be like this. Um, don't know if we can keep them in our home. Don't know if we can keep doing this. And this is where our trauma response team has developed from, um, figuring out how can we equip and support the churches in Europe to care for these refugees because there isn't alternatives. So what this has evolved into, and if you feel like you know, going home and, and having a look online, it's europeanfreedomnetwork.org slash Ukraine. It's not often that we get to um, have stuff up online, but we have developed a whole series of things like top tips for working with traumatized people. If you're transporting refugees, here's best practice. If you're accommodating refugees, here's some things to do. Um, unfortunately, we're also having to deal with things around how to support refugees who've experienced sexual violence. We are doing monthly webinars. Um, unfortunately for me, it's at 5 a.m. New Zealand time. But these are to help churches throughout Europe understand and cope with the trauma these refugees have experienced. The first one we did was on establishing safety, on like basic psychological first aid. We had more than 225 people attend, 45 of whom were denominational heads and bishops, that kind of thing, of European churches, who have taken this webinar recording and shown it to all their denominational churches throughout their countries. It's had a huge ripple effect. We've done another one on self-care, on not burning out. We're currently preparing our next one, which is to help European churches navigate the complexities surrounding women who've been raped, many of whom are pregnant, um, because a huge issue is the fact that rape is being used as a weapon of war and it's leaving really big scars and it's difficult. As Christians, how do we provide love and care and how do we support and respond in this situation? It's really hard stuff. I was in a meeting on Thursday night uh, where we were hearing from some pastors in Poland now, Poland has got more than two million refugees that it is having to house and care for, and these pastors were just saying, oh, we're exhausted. We are exhausted. We have run out of energy. We've run out of money. We don't know how to keep going. But we've got two million refugees that we have to care for. There were also Ukrainian pastors on this call and they were talking about, like many of them had sent their families out of the country early on, but they'd stayed and were still working in these really extreme conditions without any support, 
they're exhausted, they desperately need resources. Like, how do we help our people work through this trauma? It's hard stuff, and this is the ongoing impacts we don't hear about in the news. Corrine and I have been blessed by a pretty significant uh, donation from the Australian Presbyterian World Mission, uh, who have given us quite a chunk of money to be able to help support uh, work that is going on in Europe. So the first thing we did, Sim has partners in Romania who are um, trying to support and house and accommodate refugees. So we sent some money to them, and that money is being used to accommodate um, some Ukrainian refugees who are working with them as translators. We're also in the process of sending $20,000 over to partners in Bulgaria, again, to help accommodate refugee families. Because Bulgaria, like many neighbouring countries of the Ukraine, you know, there's no pre-existing refugee camps to house, you know, five million people. So the Bulgarian government's response to the situation was to say, right, hotels, hostel owners, open your doors, we're going to foot the bill. So 20,000 Ukrainian refugees arrived in Bulgaria and they have been accommodated in hotels and hostels, paid for by the government, which is really great, except it came with a catch. And the catch was, we need them all out by the time the summer tourist season starts, because we need the tourist money, yeah? Uh, so that starts in June. So this week, on May the 31st, 20,000 Ukrainian refugees who've been living in hotels for the last couple of months are being evicted. It's 20,000 already vulnerable women and children who are going to be homeless. And the government, like other neighbouring governments, are saying, we've got no more money. We've already done our bit. We've already spent our refugee budget housing them. So most of these refugees are going to end up having to return to the Ukraine because there's nowhere for them to stay. So we are partnering with friends who usually run an anti-trafficking ministry there. Um, we're partnering with them to be able to uh, find accommodation and accommodate um, several refugee families and be able to provide accommodation and counselling and living expenses for them. This is what trafficking prevention looks like, and this is the stuff that your support of me is enabling to happen. And I couldn't do this work without the financial and prayer support of you guys, and for that I am extremely grateful. I'm just going to take one minute to say that if the Lord is laying this on your heart, you are really welcome to join my team of financial or prayer supporters. Um, probably the bit I find super tricky about being a mission worker is the uh, <coughs> having to find your own support and salary part. Um, I'm currently paid for 16 hours a week. This work is pushing that up near a 25. So if you um, would like to help join my team, you're really welcome. There's info, and there's also some sign-up sheets if you want to just get my very irregular prayer letter um, down at the table on the back. So that's the mission update. Okay, so that's what we as a church have been doing 
in response to this um, pretty horrific situation that's happening. And throughout this time, Psalm 46 has been coming up a lot in meetings and prayer times with colleagues in Europe. So we're going to shift focus and have a look at Psalm 46, which says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her and she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, but he lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he's brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Psalm 46 is a relatively familiar psalm. I think particularly be still and know. Uh, We'd probably put on our most well-known Bible verses list. Perhaps not quite so well-known is that this is a war psalm. It's a psalm that describes cosmic collapse and political turmoil and divine intervention. It describes geopolitical events way back in Old Testament times that are not too dissimilar to what we're seeing today. Most commentators believe that Psalm 46 was written during events that are described in 2 Kings 18 and 19 when Jerusalem was under attack and threat of invasion from the Assyrians. So we read in 2 Kings 18, verse 9, in King Hezekiah's fourth year, the king of Assyria marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. At the end of three years, so that's three years of fighting, the Assyrians took it and Samaria was captured. The king of Assyria deported Israelites back to Assyria. Then we read 10 years later in verse 13 that the king of Assyria decided to attack again, this time attacking all the fortified cities of Judah and he captured them, destroying them completely. Now this was also in the time when Isaiah was around. He was a prophet. And during this time of war and fear of invasion and killing and destruction, Isaiah had a prophetic word for King Hezekiah. In 2 Kings 19, verse 32, therefore this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, says the Lord. I will defend the city and save it for my sake and the sake of David, my servant. And that night... 
the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And then the last verse of the chapter says he actually got murdered by his sons. But these are the events and the circumstances that prompted the writing of the psalm. And it's in the face of these circumstances, this ongoing, violent, destructive war surrounded by the enemies that the Israelites responded by singing, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble and therefore we will not fear. Though nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, the Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Their circumstances not so very different to what's happening in Europe now. I follow a Ukrainian woman on Facebook called Maya Mikhailuk. She's a pastor who made the decision to stay in Kyiv. And every day she writes a diary post uh, along with photos of things she's seen that day. She wrote on March the 19th, the night is coming. The 23rd day of war is drawing to an end. Today we had eight air raids during the day. You see in our body language the tension of a wound spring. We're just waiting. Kiev is living under tension from day one of the war. The threats are ongoing. Russian planes and rockets keep getting shot at in the sky by air defense and often the debris ends up causing damage to residential areas nearby. Every time the air raid sirens sound, we know the danger that will be falling somewhere in our big city on the heads of civilians. I read a long article today that was looking for an explanation of the intensity of bombings and rocket strikes at night around 4 and 5 a.m. in particular. The bottom line is it brings maximum casualties and maximum terror. Nick and I went today to see the buildings in our area that were hit by debris of Russian ballistic rockets two nights ago. It's far from casual curiosity. Every Ukrainian who looks at the damage from Russian bombs is making a very personal application. Every one of us is asking ourselves, if this hit my building, would my place of shelter have saved me? Every one of us is asking ourselves, where really is my shelter? Tonight, she writes, our family prays Psalm 46 because we know God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the sea, God is with us. God will help us at break of day. Nations may be in uproar. Kingdoms may fall, but he will lift his voice and the earth will melt. This is the context of the psalm. A different time, a different war, a different invasion, but the same words of God for a very similar situation. And I have found myself asking, you know, well, what is it about the psalm that resonates so much in times, not just of war, but in times of adversity? 
And I think it's because the psalm centers us back on God. It reminds us in the midst of hard stuff, in the midst of adversity, it reminds us of God's presence. It reminds us of God's power and that he is the one in control of all things. And I think in any situation that's difficult and challenging, these are three things we need to cling to. Psalm 46 makes it very clear right from the start that God is present. God is our refuge. You know, like a refuge is a place that we crawl, we climb into for safety. And it's saying that's what God is. He's the place we climb into for safety. It's where God dwells. God is within us. The Lord Almighty is with us. He is our fortress. And because he is so present, ever present, always with us, we don't need to fear. Even when there's earthquakes and bombs all around, no matter what the potential for destruction, God is with us. And this is a reminder that's repeated all through scripture. Do not fear, for I am with you. Be strong and courageous, for I am with you. I am with you wherever you go. God is present always, and because of this, we don't need to be afraid of anything. And this depth of faith is what so inspires me and also challenges me when I hear stories and I hear from Christians, Ukrainian and Russian and anywhere else in Europe, who are being deeply affected by this war, who are living in bombed out basements, but who are declaring it's okay because God is our refuge. He is our strength. He is with us here, so we don't have to be afraid. And this psalm declares this truth, you know, front and central. God is with us in everything. And I think if we could grasp that and live like that, there'd be no room for fear, yeah? I was reading a reflection um, by Tim Keller on this psalm, and he made this interesting, well I thought it was interesting, so I'm going to tell you, this interesting comment uh, on verses two and three, that back when this psalm was written, they probably had experienced earthquakes, probably not mountains falling into seas, and he said it's like they're trying to describe something that is just so big and so Devastating and so cataclysmic, being setting off this massive explosion. And Tim Keller said, kind of like a missile would, or a nuclear bomb. You know, that's the scale that they're trying to articulate in the psalm, even if the absolute worst of the worst of the worst of the worst happens, we're not going to fear because we know God's with us. We have an even more powerful force on our side. 
In Psalm 46, verse 6, we see nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, but he lifts his voice, the earth melts. And I think, if we just pause for a moment and think on that, you know, God lifts his voice and the earth melts. I mean, I can't even comprehend the force behind that. You know, but this is the same voice that spoke creation into being. This is what the psalmist is talking about here. God lifts his voice and stuff happens. That's the power the psalm is describing. That's who we have on our side, ever present with us. Right beside us, we have the power that speaks and creation responds. And I find that equally jaw-droppingly awesome and terrifying. I was on a meeting in late March and a woman uh, who's in Odessa was sharing. And she was sharing about how for the previous two weeks, the Russian Navy had been sitting offshore. The, the whole Navy, like the big super every ship they had sitting there, ready to land, poised to land and invade. And they could see these ships super clearly. I don't know if you guys have been down to our beaches and you've seen like the cargo ships sitting offshore, you know, waiting to go and unload in Littleton. That clearly, they're all just sitting there, this row of ships she described, they're waiting to invade. But then she said, but for the past two weeks, there's been this really strange storm. Not in Odessa, our weather's been fine. But as soon as you get off the beach, there's this strong storm. Huge big seas and strong winds and there's been thunder, we can see lightning. The seas have been so rough, the Russian Navy hasn't been able to land. I thought that was pretty cool. I was sharing this with a friend here at church and um, they responded by saying, hmm, well, I haven't known how to pray for what's happening in the Ukraine. So I've been praying that God would use the natural, that God would use weather. This is the God who speaks and creation responds. The third thing I think this psalm emphasizes and shows is that in these times of hard stuff and adversity and overwhelming fear, we've just got to remember that it's actually God who's in control. I thought long and hard about skipping over this verse because I thought the uh, psalm read a lot easier without this uh, <laughs> this bit in, but of course then I felt like I should probably address it. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolation he's brought on the earth. It's quite harsh, yeah? Some translations actually describe this as destructions. Come and see what the Lord has done, the destruction he's brought on the earth. For me, that brings up a lot of questions. 
not least of which is what on earth are desolations? Does it mean that God's causing war, allowing war? And I've, I've got to be honest and admit that while this has been incredible work to be a part of, I have had times where I've been asking God these things, like, is this part of your plan? You know, is, is what's going on in Europe at the moment, is that okay with you? Why haven't you stopped it? Couldn't you arrange a strategic bomb to go off near a particular leader? Why are you allowing this? I mean, am I the only one who asks questions like that? Surely not. You know, why are you allowing innocent women to be violated and traumatized and killed? That doesn't sit well with me and my understanding of God. And I'm not gonna go into a discussion here of why God allows suffering or a theology of war discussion. You can do that at Life Group. Or even, <laughs> thanks leaders. <laughs> or even, as I've read somewhere, that this whole situation is the beginning of end times battles and the second coming. I've got no idea. I don't know those answers. But I think as Christians, like Hannah was saying this, you know, lament and celebrate. We've got to learn to sit in the middle of the both end, of the hard stuff. We have to learn to not have all the answers. Because the fact is there is war, not just in Europe. There's going to be lots of other places that we don't hear so much about. There is lots of innocent people suffering. But that doesn't mean God isn't present and it doesn't mean that God isn't good, and it doesn't mean that God doesn't care. It just means we're living in that horrible space between Jesus coming the first time and Jesus coming the second time. And in the middle of that, where we are, there's a battle going on, and it's not just spiritual. Adversity makes us question and ask the hard questions. But I think actually to understand this verse, this difficult verse, rather than thinking, does this mean God causes destruction and desolation? I think we need to remember the context of when this psalm was written back in Second Kings when the Israelites were under siege and they were being bombed and they were surrounded and they thought they were gonna be annihilated and they prayed that God would intervene and save them and then they woke up in the morning to 185,000 dead Assyrian bodies around them. Now, if that was me and I came out of my shelter, I'd certainly be going, whoa, look at all this destruction. Look what, look what, look what the Lord has done. You know, I think that's the context of this verse. It's not God smiting and smoting. It's, wow, look what God's done. He is the one in control. And this verse, this tricky little verse eight, serves as a reminder that he has it in control. He will bring the victory. 
He is the one that makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He is the one that breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He is the one that burns the shield with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. The verse that underpins our evangelical focus on uh, quiet times. Stopping and stilling ourselves before the Lord is really important. Uh, It's something as Christians, we should be cultivating that habit to do every day. And Jesus gives the example of doing that. But I think like so many scriptures, there's often more than one layer, one layer of meaning. And I think many people tend to think of this verse about resting and relaxing in who God is. And while that is true, there's actually more to it than that. Because this word that's been translated for us as be still is a Hebrew word, hapu, which means to let go, release, to cease, which is a significant shift because rather than merely being passive and just being still, we are being instructed to actively let go, release. God is in control. Other translations say, cease striving and know that I'm God. Let go of your concerns and know that I am God. Stop fighting, he says, and know that I am God. And I find that one interesting in a psalm about war. You know, these are perhaps more accurate interpretations of the command to harpu. And it's the same command, this be still command, Jesus gave the wind and the waves in Mark 4. And the wind and the sea completely died down in silence, in awe and worship of their creator. Jesus didn't suggest it. He told them to stop because he is the one in control. And this psalm reminds us that it's not us. It's not our strength. It's not our way of doing things that achieves victory. It's God, because he is the one in control of it all, and therefore we can rest and not fear the outcome. And he's telling us in this verse to let go of what we are trying to control ourselves. You see, when we're hanging on tight to something, when we're hanging on to this fixed way of how we do things, when we're hanging on to how we think something should work out and how we want things to go, we're saying, I'm in control. I want it to happen this way. But the Lord is saying here, just stop fighting and let it go. Cease striving to do it on your own strength. Release it to me. Stop trying to control what's going on and let me do that. Be still 
and know that I am God and I've got you. This is an amazing psalm reminding us of God's presence, his power and to actively let go and cease striving and let him be the one in control. We're going to close the service a little differently today uh, without the worship team coming back by listening to a song. At the beginning of the psalm in our Bibles, there is the instruction that says Psalm 46, for the director of music of the sons of Korah, a song. At the beginning of this year, Southland Church in Kentucky put this Psalm 46 to music. And I wanna just read to you as I leave how this song came to be. In early January, Weeks before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, two friends, Sam Cox and Alan Frower, wrote this song from Psalm 46 during our church fast. It was sung for the first time at the last meeting of our three-day fast, and our elders sensed a prophetic urgency to have the song translated into Ukrainian and recorded for the strengthening and comfort for Christians in Ukraine. We had no idea why Ukrainian, we just knew we had to do it. You see, God knew what was coming and before war had even broken out, the psalm was ready to bring comfort to his people. Amen. Spoken in Tremble when mountains crumble.
Okay. 